Okay, good morning. You're alive? Um, the, um, the 9.30 service, we're a lot, a lot livelier. So, um, it's good to see you. My name's Steve, and um, I'm married to Tammy, um, and um, one of the pastors here. Um, we, um, we, I, haven't, I, haven't, I feel like I haven't spoke for ages, and so this morning I'm earning my keep and speaking. So, um, but before we do that, um, some, of, some of the folks who are based in Wellingborough and Ketrin, um, some of them were out on the streets uh, yesterday praying for people and stuff like that. So I've, just, I've asked Steve to come and just share uh, a, a snapshot um, of, of what happened yesterday when they went on, on the streets. Give them a, a warm round of applause. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, yeah, I was able to join up with the uh, folks from Catherine yesterday, and we met uh, Elaine and David's house and just to chat and pray, but even then I, I felt God was giving us a bit of a theme, really, and it was about bringing the kingdom. Um, one of the things is, like, bring, the kingdom of God is at hand, and we so, sort of felt that God was saying, look, the kingdom is there with the power of the Holy Spirit and demonstrating the kingdom on the streets, so that's what we kind of went out with. So, um, and we just split up into different things and had some great opportunities to pray for people and some great conversations. I actually prayed for a a couple, two ladies there and one of the relatives had got about six weeks to live. And so we were able to pray with them uh, on that particular occasion. And there was loads of stuff like that. And from what I've been told this morning from David there, um, on the way back to the car park because we all parked in different places there was opportunities even to pray for even more people I understand on the way back from that so it was a great morning um really really good um had a really great time with it can I just share something else um because I've had I've had some words over the last couple of weeks and these these are words of knowledge sorry to switch the quick I'm, I'm I'm better off on the other end of the mic actually being a sound engineer but I just felt God was showing me there's, I think there's a lady here. You might be here this week, I don't know, but you have problems driving your car and changing gear. Obviously, your left, your left hand it gives you a lot of pain. Also felt God was showing me that um, there's, a, there's a person here got a problem with a stepladder, and it might be you've fallen off a stepladder or you can't go up stairs or something like that. Um, and there's another word of knowledge that I've got for healing, which I just felt God showing me this morning. On this side of the jaw, when you bite hard, you get a sharp pain. And I just feel God is wanting to heal those conditions. So if you've got pain, generally, this morning, I would say, could you come out after the service and we'll, we'll pray for you? Is that okay? Yeah. Don't, don't run away yet, Steve. Um, on a, on a scale of 1 to 10 in being terrified going out on the streets, how, what scale would you put it on? Whoa, about 7. About 7. But on a scale of would I do this again, 1 to 10, what would you? Oh, yeah, def- definitely do it again. Yeah, that's a 10. Okay, so if you want to um, join them next time, I'm sure they would love to have you. Just want to take the microphone. In Wellingborough next time. Cool. Okay. Um, if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Esther? 
Uh, we've been um, journeying through this book um, for a couple of weeks now. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 6 this morning. Um, it's been an interesting journey, kind of walking through this, this book together. You may remember us saying right at the start of this series, it's a, it's a peculiar book uh, to have in the Bible, because God isn't mentioned in it. Um, you, you can't find God uh, in the book of Esther. But as we've unpacked this story, it's been clear to see God's hand at work. That, that on the surface, it's a story that sounds like a story of coincidences. You know, lots of coincidental things happen. Yet as we dig a little bit deeper, we see God's providence at work. Uh, that God is orchestrating uh, what takes place uh, for the lives of these people. And so over the last few weeks, we've introduced you to some of the main characters in this story. Uh, first of all, we meet uh, King Xerxes, who um, um, at the time is like the world superpower. Uh, he's, the, he's the king of the Persian emperor, empire. And... Um, uh, and he's also a king who likes to party. Um, he, he likes to have a drink. Um, as I often say to people, I, I prefer quality over quantity. If you're going to buy me anything, you can buy me a fine single malt um, or maybe a rare gin. Um, and I will happily go for quality. Uh, but this king went for quantity. Okay, he went for quantity and so did all his mates. And on one occasion, he's there drinking away with his friends and um, he requests his wife to come uh, and show her beauty uh, to all his friends. I'll let you interpret what that means. Okay, Uh, suffice to say, she's a noble woman and she refuses. And, And actually, as a result, the king banishes her from his kingdom. And, and, and so that begins the quest that uh, the king has to find a new wife. Um, and again, there's, there's lots of things we could say about that. Um, and, and this is where we meet Mordecai, uh, a Jewish descendant of the Babylonian exile, and his young cousin, Esther, who was orphaned and now is in his care. Now, Esther, as we heard, was beautiful, um, and the king... Uh, was attracted to her, and he wants to take her as his wife. And so this unlikely Jewish orphan girl becomes the queen of the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. Now, Mordecai was a, uh, a man who worked in the king's courts, and, and, and in his work, you may remember in chapter 1, he uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. And, uh, and so he, he warns the king, and the king is, is grateful for the information, but he doesn't reward him in any way. Meanwhile, we meet another character, uh, a guy called Haman, who uh, had come, it come to a point where he was kind of the, the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire, had risen through the ranks and become prime minister. And he has so much power that people are ordered to bow down to him in his presence. 
And so everybody kind of complies except this guy called Mordecai. And so this kind of ticks him off, ticks Haman off, and, uh, and, and, and so he decides to hatch a plan to speak to the king and say to the king, um, I, I, want this, I want this Jewish man dead, and, and whilst we're at it, we'll, we'll kill them all. And so that's, that's kind of where we've got to uh, in the story. That's the, the brief encounter of this story. Uh, but we're going to catch up now in um, verse 1 of chapter 6. And my wife is going to come and read it for us. That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Thank you. This this story is is kind of full of comedic irony. Uh, Here we have this character, Haman. Um, He's the second in command. He's he's powerful. He has everything at his fingertips. And at the same time, in in many ways, uh, he's a man full of insecurity, uh, who, who loves to talk about his own greatness, uh, about his own achievements. And you could say he's a man full of pride. Uh, he's full of pride. And, and, and so um, he's the main antagonist of this story. He's the bad guy in the story. And yet there's something in this man I think we can all relate to. And that's what I want to try and unpack this morning. And so in the, this morning I want to talk about the story of pride and the glory of humility. And so I want to think about what pride is, what pride is like. Uh, I want to think about how pride works itself into our lives and ultimately how pride is cured. 
C.S. Lewis uh, said this, said, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling, concentration on self. When we're full of pride, we concentrate, we, we give all our attention to ourselves. We see this in Haman. He's obsessed with himself. We, we might call him self-absorbed. Uh, he, he loves to concentrate on his own achievements. Now, there are two forms of pride that we can battle with. And I just want to think about those uh, for a moment. One form of pride would be superiority. And, and, and the, this form of pride, shaped by superiority, is, is, is generally recognised as the kind of pride most of us suffer with or we observe in others. I don't know if you see the irony there. Um, but it's, it's kind of the pride that we visibly recognise. Uh, uh, and with the pride of superiority, we, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We're always thinking things like, how do I look compared to them? How do I fit in? How is this moment going? How am I being appreciated? How am I being regarded? How am I being regarded in this situation? What are people really thinking of me? And we're constantly uh, speaking and talking to ourselves with an air of superiority. Superiority gives us a sense of whether we're doing well or not. Uh, and, and, and one of the ways it manifests itself is we, we say things to ourselves like this. And um, we say, oh, I, I'm, I'm really glad I'm not like that person. Um, uh, or, or, or we say, um, you know, at, at least I don't behave the way they do in church. Um, or or, or whatever, it, whatever it might be. Um, uh, you know, we're all familiar with pride that manifests itself as superiority. But there's another form of pride, and maybe we've not considered it before, and that's the pride of inferiority. A pride of inferiority. And so inferiority is, formed, uh, is a form of pride that instead of looking at ourselves and building ourselves up, we look at ourselves and we tear ourselves down. Maybe we don't like what we see. Maybe we don't like what we are doing, or we're self-conscious about who we are, uh, and we're always beating ourselves down. But here's the thing, inferiority, we're, when, we're, when we're focusing on inferiority, we are being just as self-absorbed. We're doing all the same things. We're still comparing ourselves to others. We're still taking notes. But instead of thinking, I'm doing well, we think, I'm doing badly. I'm not doing great. I'm a terrible person. Now, one of the, th- one of the reasons why we don't think like that is, is because, well, one of the reasons we don't see inferiority as pride is because we often mistake inferiority for Humility. You see, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's 
thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis um, famously wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. I'm sure many of you have read that book. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a classic, but it's really a book about a senior devil giving advice to a junior devil. And, um, and he's explaining how um, the tactics of Satan to tempt people. In the book, you have to understand when the word enemy is used, he's talking about Jesus. Uh, and when they use the word patient, they're talking about us, okay, human beings. And so if you understand that, then this makes a pretty good quote. It says, he said, you must conceal from your patient the real nature of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as low opinion of his own talents and character. To thwart the enemy, we must consider his aims. He wants to bring your man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it was the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less glad of having done it than if it was done by another. Our enemy, you see, wants to turn the man's attention away from self altogether. Throw it uh, towards him and the man's neighbours. Remember, both vainglory and self-contempt equally keep the mind on the self. Both vainglory and self-contempt, they keep the mind on the self. You see, pride... As Lewis said, is, is, is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling, concentration on the self in whatever form it takes, whether it's superiority, thinking that we're better than everyone else around us, or whether it's inferiority and we're constantly putting ourselves down, degrading ourselves compared to others. The other thing that pride does is it, 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 um, it keeps us from learning from our mistakes. You see, a proud person always justifies themselves. Um, you know, that relationship breakdown, that, that falling out, um, that, that job that didn't come through, often the response a proud person will have to situations like that was, it was him. It was her, it was that other person, it was the circumstances. What they will never say is, it was me. And so if we carry pride in our hearts, we we do find it hard to learn from the mistakes that we made. In contrast, you know, those who are humble of heart are the kind of people who can laugh at themselves. Who, who don't take themselves too seriously. And as a result, they learn from the things that they do wrong. When, someone goes, when something goes wrong for a humble person, they look at what they've done and think, oh my goodness, why did I do that? That was stupid. And, then, and from there, they, they choose to learn something about the situation, how they could do it differently, how they could respond differently in that moment. And, 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 and so they learn and they grow up in the process. Another way that we learn to grow from our mistakes is learning to hear and take criticism. Anybody like criticism? I love it on a Sunday afternoon, emails. They're wonderful. Um, 
I don't really get them. They go to, they go to Esther, just so you know. Um, <laughs> Esther, my PA, not Esther here that we're talking about. Um, that would just be weird. Um, now, if the form of pride that you carry is, is shaped by superiority and someone criticizes you, at best, at best, um, you will dismiss what that person has to say. You'll just say, nah, don't know what you mean. Okay? At worst, you will attack them. Okay? If you carry that pride of superiority. In contrast, if you, if you carry um, inferiority as pride, then any criticism you hear, hear will, will devastate you. And, and what tends to happen in, in that sense is that you melt and you retreat and you hide. Either way, however we respond, whether we carry superiority or inferiority, either way, we fail to learn. That pride robs us from learning from our mistakes. There's something else about pride. Pride is sin. Pride is sin. And not just one sin among many, but reality is I think it's the root of all sin. You know, we might battle with things like bitterness and anger, but there's no bitterness, there's no anger without pride. You know, if someone does something wrong against us, and, and maybe our response is, you know what, I would never do something like that to a person. I would never respond the way they've responded. And if that's our heart response, we're, we're kind of doing it already, aren't we? We're kind of taking on that mantle of superiority. Pride can also lead us to be indecisive. That if we, if we feel inferior from pride, then, then we can just be afraid of making the wrong move. We can be worried about, you know, if we do this, will it work out the way we hoped? It, it's probably all going to go wrong, and there's nothing I can do about it. And what, you know, if I do this, then this is bound to happen, you know. And, and we kind of get into this, this cycle Pride can make us too shy if we have it in its inferiority form. And yet at the same time, uh, pride can make make us too abrasive uh, if it's in the superiority form. Pride can make us opinionated. Uh, I don't know if you have ever recognized that one. You know, that's just on a personal level. There's also the great, great social evils of our day. Racism, injustice, imperialism, they all come from a form of pride. Whether it's a class pride or a racial pride or a nationalistic kind of pride. But on top of all of that, there is one thing that makes pride deadly above all else. And that is that pride is, is the one sin that hides itself. Tim Keller, um, a pastor from New York, he says this. He says, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin, killing you without having any ability to tell that it's happening. It is odorless. 
pride hides itself. And, you know, that's true, isn't it? You know, so often when other things go wrong, we, we see it. We, we see it coming. You know, people, you know, if someone commits adultery, they never say, oh, my gosh, you're not my wife. You know, or anything like that. Or, you know, if someone's embezzling thousands of pounds of money uh, from someone else's bank account, they don't say, oh, I don't know how that got into my bank account. <laughs> I thought it was just what I earned. Um, we don't do that. It's, the simple reality is, is we, we don't know when we're proud. And yet, pride is inescapable. Joseph Epstein, he, he wrote this about pride. He says, so many people hate snobs. Do you know what snobs are? It's a very weird phrase, isn't it? A bit of an 80s phrase, I think. But so many people hate snobs. But you can only hate snobs if you feel superior to them, which means hating snobbery is a form of snobbery. Because humble, humble people don't feel superior to anyone. He goes on to say this. Do you look down your nose at snobs? Do you look down your nose at people who look down their nose at people? And so pride is this inescapable reality. It affects us all. But do you know there's an even worse experience of pride than that? Even more than the invisible, inescapable nature of pride. The worst thing about pride is when religious people get hold of it. I'm sure you all know or may have met someone who's a little bit religious. If you're not sure, nudge the person next to you and say he's talking about you. Um, No, don't do that because we've just become very prideful again. Um... But I'm sure we've all met someone who's getting good at religion, who's getting good at being gooder. Being religious can often help us to deal with the issues in our lives, that that, that sometimes our religiousness might kill the things that are problems in our lives. You know, if if I'm religious enough and I try enough, I'm not going to be a person who lusts. I'm not going to be a person who's given to materialism. But if you've met a religious person, there's a good chance you have if you come to church, um, you'll know often that righteousness can make pride worse. And there's no pride like religious pride. Some of you have got the T-shirt. And so it's true, religious religiosity uh, can kill all kinds of sin in our lives. You know, we can act in such a way and modify our behavior in such a way, and it can help us deal with the problems. But I would also say that a religious spirit is like pouring oil on a fire, and trying to deal with pride that way is dangerous. And so we recognize that pride is a problem. It's, it's something that we all carry. That's why we can relate to this guy in the book of Esther. But what could be the cure? 
as, as Haman comes to the king, the king asks him this kind of crucial question. He says, what should be done, verse 6, for a man the king delights to honour? And you see, Haman is a man who is desperately needing respect, desperately needing approval, desperately waiting to be honoured and to receive glory. And in this moment, he thinks the king is talking about him. He thinks, well, your majesty, I, I don't know. What, what would you give a, a man like that? And so he comes up with this fascinating proposal. He says, I think you should take your royal robes and you should place them on this person you delight in. And you should put them on your horse and then have someone parade them through the city and declare how much you delight in this person, how much you want to honour this person. And you see, the king put in his robes on a person was more than just giving this person a, a high position. We see it throughout the scriptures. When, when Pharaoh put his robes on Joseph, uh, it, it means Joseph actually partakes in the king's position. He becomes like the king. When Jonathan gives his kingly robes to David, it's Jonathan's way of saying, you know what, David, I love you as a, as a brother, and, a, and, and you need to take these robes because... I'm not meant to be king. You're the one who's meant to be king. It's not me, it's you. And for this king to put his robes on someone was a way, not not simply saying, I honour this person, but he was saying, I delight in this person. I love who this person is. And if the people were to see that, that he, Haman, was was loved by someone as great as the king, then the people would surely know his worth and his value. They would see how important he is, how special he is. And you see, in many ways, that's true of all of us. We don't just want love, but we want, we want someone whom we think the world of to think the world of us. Or as one person put it, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. It's it's what Haman is longing for, the praise of the king. But the shock of the story, the, the twist of the story, is the king says, do that to Mordecai. Do that to Mordecai the Jew. And, and don't leave out anything you suggested. You know, just, I'm just going to rub salt into the wound a little bit more. You know, you suggested all these things because you thought you were going to get them. But don't leave any of that. Make sure you honour him in every way that you suggested. And it's here we see a kind of reversal of fortune. You know, Mordecai is, is about to be put on a stake, a stake or hung from gallows. And, and, and suddenly he's thrust into a place of high honour. And you see, we, as we read these, these, this story, 
The truth of this we see echoed throughout the scriptures, don't we? We see Jesus pick up on this theme in Matthew 23 and verse 12. He says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, he said, we're called to be the kind of people who lose our lives to find it. And so here's the thing. I I don't think that Haman did... he He didn't ask for the wrong thing. He actually asked for something that we all want. See, we want someone, we all want someone of ultimate glory loving us. We all want and need ultimate assurance of who we are, ultimate assurance of our worth. We, we all long and crave for that. We, we need someone with ultimate power to give us ultimate love. We, we need someone we think the world of to think the world of us. We need the praise of the praiseworthy. He wasn't asking, or his motivations weren't for the wrong thing. Because it's the thing that's, that's wrong in all of us. We're, 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 we're all the same. That's why we all have the problem of pride. Maybe, maybe that's what you guessed. We all have this problem. And that's why we're so needy all of the time. And you see, here's the thing. Haman didn't ask uh, for the wrong thing. He asked the wrong king. He asked the wrong king. But actually, there's a better king. There's a king with ultimate glory who comes to us and strips himself of that glory. He's a king who goes to a cross, who who wasn't just stripped of his clothes, but he was stripped of his father's love. He was stripped of his father's approval. He was stripped of his father's respect. And that happened because he was reversing places with us. He was exchanging places with us. See, Mordecai was saved because Haman reversed places with him. Involuntarily, of course. But Jesus reverses places with us and he does it voluntary. There, the, the ultimate king, there's the king of all glory. Uh, there, the, the, the king, he's the king who goes... And, and, and at infinite cost to himself, he, he exchanges places with you and I. As the scriptures say, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus was stripped naked, he, he, so we could be clothed in his righteousness. He was stripped of his kingly robes and and we were invited to put them on. 
See, Jesus exchanges places with us. He takes what we deserve so we can have what he deserves. And in this crazy reality of pride, Jesus becomes our humility. He's the humble one. He's the one we're called to embrace in all our pridefulness, in all the things that we carry. He's the one who becomes our humility. As I was preparing for this talk, I realized that C.S. Lewis had a lot to say about pride. And um, I just want to finish um, by reading this quote from him. He says this, if anybody wants to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the very first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggest step too. At least nothing, whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Indeed.